Welcome to the podcast of the Talberg Foundation. My name is Martin Kutz. I'm a board member of the foundation. In this podcast, we present a selection of recordings from one of our events. This episode features the Talberg Eliasson Global Leadership Prize winners 2019. Anne Goldfeld, Faustin Lienkula, and Saul Griffith. Tom Cummings, the secretary of the Global Leadership Prize Jury, and Talberg board member spoke with the winners after their participation in the New Thinking for a New World workshop held in Nairobi, Kenya. The session was recorded on 14 November 2019. Just so you know, we're getting this on tape now. Oh, so, all right. Uh, Let's start over. Okay. Good. So, um, Good morning. Thank you all for being here, Talberg Laureates. Privileged to have you here for the forum, the Talberg program on uh, new thinking. And what we want to try to do this morning is have a little conversation. Um, all of you, uh, who's been to Kenya before? So Anne has been here. So uh, you, I lived you've here. lived here so for six years. Was six it? years. Nairobi yeah. was yeah. home between ninety-three yeah. and ninety-nine. Yeah. And so you're uh, headed off to the rift this morning with yes. the Leakeys. Tell me, tell me about that. I've been friendly with Louise Leakey for a number of years, and I called her and said that I'd be in Kenya. Uh, and she said, well, you should come up and visit the, her field station uh, in Turkana. And so we're, we're off to see the cradle of uh, humanity. Yeah. I'm extremely excited. And since this meeting is about new thinking for a new world, this really takes us back to a, a very distant past. But can you connect the dots between that past and this future that we're stepping into as a as a person deeply concerned with climate and challenges? Well, one one view is maybe it doesn't matter where we came from and it doesn't matter where we go <laughs> on this cosmic right. journey. Or, uh, you know, actually I, a thought that I've been having recently, which is, about as close to spiritual as ever as I've ever gone is if you consider the unbelievable improbability of humanity emerging then all of our civilizations mm. building and you think about you know continued human existence which is really in some respects the underlying reason to try and fight back against climate change and to keep a more stable effort and you think about how unbelievably improbable succeeding at that effort is yeah. <laughs> I've sort of arrived at the place well well we have to solve it because mm. it's so improbable we got here even though it's so improbable right. that we get to the future we'll we will uh, fumble our way through because there's right. no other option so we'll live in our improbabilities yeah uh, how do and you or Faustan resonate with that thought I was very moved by the um, vice president's comment that uh, he was welcoming us welcoming us all home to the cradle of humanity. And, you know, indeed that's true, you know, and um, and so it, it's the idea that from this cradle could come ideas that are transformational for the entire world and for humanity as it is now in all our billions is a very intriguing thought. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, so in terms of leading uh, in certain health initiatives yes. and in environmental initiatives that could be game changers and models for the rest of the planet is a very um, compelling idea. So that the sense that that could start anywhere. So if we're in this random 
uh, evolution that is highly improbable, then it's just as probable that the birth of new things could come from here. And the other aspect of it is that our um, our closest um, biological relatives uh, are all here in Africa and um, and in East Africa, the mountain gorilla, the uh, chimpanzee, uh, and and it just and they're rapidly disappearing daily mm. so that there's a lot to preserve and a lot to uh to both go to use a term that um Faustan used lobby is that my pronunciation lobby, yes. lobby and it means to think backward and forward at the same time mm. so let's go into lobby just to back up a little bit Faustan uh because you introduced that term where is that coming from and What's your connection with that and what you're hearing in this conversation? Well, lobby is the Lingala word to say yesterday, mm-hmm. but it's also the same word which is used to say tomorrow. And the Lingala people are from? And Lingala is one of the major languages in the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, but it's also spoken in the Republic of Congo or Congo Brazzaville. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, See, Africa is very fragmented uh, in terms of languages, but there are some languages that go across borders and that connect us. You have like Swahili, which goes all the way from um, Tanzania to Eastern um, DRC. And so in Lingala, for a long time, for me, I thought that it was just a very poor language and they could only have one word to say yesterday and tomorrow. Until it it hit me, it's like no, actually, it is more profound than that. That mm-hmm. um, the fact that they could only use one word to say yesterday and tomorrow means that they stopped looking at time as linear. Uh, it's not a, it's not a timeline, past, present, future, but it's circular. So tomorrow and um, yesterday are actually connected, and it is in the circulation through the present that things um, are given their own um, significance. And therefore, being a dancer, and knowing that traditionally when we want to dance, um, we make circles. It's like, now I understand the lobby. It is this circle where we reaffirm our um, presence to the world today, but knowing that this presence is a connector between the past and the future, between the ancestors and the unborn. And in fact, it's circle of dance is really that moment when, especially when a dancer goes in the middle, where it's a moment when you say, I'm here with my community, but we're here because some people walked this path before us. And what is it that we can do? to make it possible for others to walk after us. It, it, uh, when you say lobby, it reminds me, I think it's an American Indian expression that you're, you're not giving the world to your children, you're borrowing the world from your grandchildren. Yes. And I think the directionality of, of that is really important. And uh, the idea that I think it's a, something the whole world could, would feel more responsible if we really understood that we were borrowing the world from our grandchildren, which means that we, you know, I think 
makes sure that you understand that you have to try and leave it better than it was. These are important cosmologies. I was also thinking of a different American Indian um, idea Mm. of the seventh generation, and I think Mm. that was, I believe that was Iroquois, that you should, every profound decision that you take, you should think about how it's going to impact the seventh generation. So Mm. it's uh, sort of the same idea of everything Mm. being connected. And the the challenge, uh, so... In Tolberg, as as we think about this topic that we've been discussing, this, you know, here we are. We we're in a world where we need new thinking. Um, I I'm struck by we held one of our meetings in CERN several years ago, uh, and what we were concerned with, and what reminded me of this yeah. conversation, in the circles, is that there we were in the circle of the Hadron Collider, mm. and we were talking about the history of the cosmos. Mm. We were talking about the history of the Earth, right? In Earth time, the geology, the, the African rift. And we were talking about, about the history and the evolution of humankind. And the very first person who stood up, this physicist from India, and she said, you, you know that, that um, periodic chart that you had in high school? She said, it's about 4% of all the matter that we know about. The rest, we don't know. And I was, I was struck by that, that we sit here in the unknowing now. Does that daunt you? Because you're all, in a way, visionaries in the work that you do. In the face of the unknowing, how do we not paralyze? How do we, how do we find resources? Well, the unknowing is, uh, can be exciting. It's the adventure. It's exactly. The, it's the journey. Yes. It's it's where all of the creativity comes from. Imagining what what is out there and and, and what we we can, you know, it's an it's a blank canvas for us to paint interesting things on. So for for this group of people, the unknowing, I see it in your yes. eyes. You're all very <laughs> excited. Yeah. Like I, I think um, I only do what I do because I don't know, and therefore I'm like okay, what is it that I can decipher in the middle of all this? Just, yeah. so, and that's so exciting, really. Yeah. Now, every day I go to the lab, it's a blank canvas, and that's both what's very hard about it and uh, also very exciting because you're, uh, you're thinking new thoughts uh, and putting things together that people haven't put together before, potentially. And how can we be guides for others who are fearful of that, of knowing? I think um, I, I, it's fearful is a, a strange word for me for this. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, I, I don't know about fearful, but, it, but it's just step by step. Yeah, and fearful or disoriented, or, yeah, step by step. So I think dis- disoriented would be the word that I would use, actually. Um, and so maybe then I view um, the question for me, it's how do I make this contagious? My excitement about the unknown contagious so that those who are maybe apprehensive about it, it's like, oh, actually, it can be a fun game to play. It can be dangerous because, like, hey, as a dancer, I know that when I go on stage, I don't play any role. Hmm. Or if I, do, I play any role, it is my own role. And therefore, um, it is this 
And we say before uh, any performance that we are playing tonight, mm. yeah. even in Shakespearean language, they say the players. Yeah. But it is a dangerous play because you're playing with your own life. So it's like Russian roulette kind of situation. But this actually just uh, brings a rush of adrenaline. It's like, I don't know. And that's why I, don't, I want to jump. Yeah. And actually, you know what? It's fun. It's dangerous, but it's fun. And, and I see, how make it contagious. Yeah, I see. And so that so there's this contagious. I, I see in your and Saul's work uh, this sense of this element of play. And I'm and I'm curious, Saul, when you when you hear this kind of language, how do you resonate with that? When you hear a dancer describing his en- encounter with the unknowing, it, it, my mind had wanted to the. Late 20th century environmentalism was very concerned that children were not growing up with any relationship with the, the natural world. And somehow this had taken to me, you know, prophylactically, these people who are scared of the unknown, you know, uh, it made, reminded me that perhaps we just need to get our children out very young and, and have them look up at the stars and a little more. It's unclear that we are raising our children with a little bit of that existentialism of like looking up at this infinite universe and, and, and what on earth is out there. And, you know, perhaps this, I, it does worry me that more than half of us now live in crowded urban environments and we always sleep under a roof and we never, we aren't exposed to quite enough uncertainty and quite enough fear and quite enough existential tininess mm. <laughs> as children and looking at the universe. Um, so that's, that, that, those thoughts are taking me there. But in terms of the play, you know, I, I, it's unbelievably important. And it's um, when you, you know, you're just talking about um, children growing without like relationship to, to nature. That makes me think about my own relationship to nature, how I, I grew up. The first eight years of my life, I lived in a village, which was right in the middle of the forest. And so, no electricity. But, but what is very interesting for me is to realize that we grew with this fear of nature. Yes. With, um, with this idea that nature... Like, the, just the idea of going for a walk in the forest, you don't do that because the forest gives you food mm. and therefore... It can kill you. <laughs> so we grew up with these ideas about the spirits and all that. But then there was this excitement of like, actually, I will go there. So it's like define you know, um, what scares you. And in all of your work, you go there. I'm struck by how you all go out into the field. What does going to the field mean for you? You know, I work on nominally renewable energy systems, clean yes. energy, and, you know, I, 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 I struggle with solving climate change. Of course, there's no real solution. It's, you know, it's how do we live peacefully with the earth with enough stability to have the most flourishing civilization we can. And when you are, what's lovely about having this in, in Africa is you get out of the Western mindset. So the Western mindset of a solution to 
climate change means how does everyone live with Danish modernism? <laughs> right. right. And, uh, and roads and cars. And um, that's, you know, we need more versions of the future that are more engaging and more interesting than just we all end up in living in Danish suburbia. And so field work for me in trying to, is, is trying to imagine futures that are diverse and interesting and take the best of all of these cultures and, and, and prototype futures that are perhaps more engaging and more diverse and more interesting than just Danish modernism everywhere. Mm. You, you, you work in a lab, you, but you go out to the field and you come back. So this, what is doing that? And as you hear Saul uh, talk about being out there and when, when you hear Fastan talking about the forest, what what is what is what nourishes you in doing that? What or what helps you to achieve what you want to achieve in this world by doing that? I was remembering when we began to do some of the science work in Cambodia, um, mm-hmm. and uh, we and we had been delivering care for a long time, so we had a relationship with the patients. Um, we and we want when we were trying to understand these T cells, like what was going on with the immune response to infection and specifically to tuberculosis and how could we improve it, you know, I met with this group of patients who were so poor in Spiring in this eastern province of Cambodia and discussed with them, you know, they, we were going to try to get, we needed to get this much blood and so forth and so on that we wouldn't, uh, they would not directly benefit from this research. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they had... I mean, I just can't describe the level of poverty. Uh, and um, so they went to discuss, and they, somebody came out as the leader of the group, and they said, we want to, we believe in karma, and we want to help the world cure TB. So that... So they got that. I mean, it, and it was like, you know, take off your shoes and walk on holy ground there. I mean, it was so... Remarkable. Like I think we often so so we did, and we did. You know, we did our best to try to under, use that resource in a way that, and also, you know, the so the science, of course, then feeds back because when you are doing these kind of studies, you're seeing the patients more often. So they they anything that has come up, you then can deal with, uh, you know, clinically and so forth. Mm-hmm. So everything is so connected. And, you know, we often underestimate people, uh, we think, and that is one of the worst things that we can do. So I think, uh, you know, I just believe in people. And I think that if we can communicate the situation, people constantly, you know, they have, they're really, they, people are good at heart. I, I don't know how to, to say it in a different way and want to be part of a solution. Mm. Let me ask a final question. How has your encounter with the Talberg Foundation, the prize aside, but uh, affect the way you think about what you're doing next in the future? I think any opportunity to step back from the triage and to be allowed amidst your own triage to be a little more philosophical and a little more top-down is uh, an incredible luxury afforded to us by the Tolberg Foundation. If only a lot more people had that opportunity, uh, I think that is how you improve the world. 
Couldn't, couldn't, I see heads nodding. Yeah. How do you feel going away from here? Less lonely. <laughs> the speaker of the group. No. Less, less lonely. Less lonely. It's like, hey, the circle is bigger. It's all about, it's like acupuncture, really, like, um, but here it's about identifying those other points yeah. there that are activating energy. It's there and say, oh, how do I yeah. connect to them? And so, yeah. And you're part of a lot of learned societies. What's different about this? I don't know if I'm a part of so many learned societies, but yeah. I, I, what I do, what I'm, yeah, again, listening to um, Saul and um, Faustan speak, I think that um, what is great about being here is you, you meet, you, I have met people that are working on multiple, from multiple different perspectives. And whereas, you know, in the, in one's job world, uh, often uh, there's a, kind of a, a shuttling of people into boxes and uh, and that a laterality and integration is not encouraged. So it's been um, really great to meet people who are also um, working on multiple different levels and integrating a lot of different things. So that's been fantastic. And also, you know, uh, and and thinking about leadership, which I, I really don't think about ever, in, per se, as a separate thing. So it's been very interesting. I think we'll leave it there. I appreciate so much that you can share your lives, that you can be here to accept the prize. We, we are in gratitude to you for the work that you do, um, because the prize is simply a marker point along a much longer journey. And I really want to wish you all well in those visions that you hold for the future. And I think you've give, given Kenya a little bit of vision as well. So that's, that's not a bad outcome. <laughs> Good. Yeah. I think we've borrowed from them. <laughs> <laughs> so we're giving back. Yeah. We're giving back. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. More, okay. more, more future. This was actually uh, the title of a piece I made 10 years ago. And it was supposed to be my punk piece. And so I said, oh, let's go fully into this punk logic. And so we'll have a slogan. And it's like, oh, yeah, no, no future. It doesn't work. If I live in a world where everyone is busy destroying something, then no future is like just being part of that game. So the only way to be subversive in my context is to try and propose something. So our slogan was more, more, more future. It's funny, on, uh, I bought a 1957 Fiat Multipla, which is uh, the world's tiniest six-seat bus. And it's a, um, in some respects, if you wanted to have a more sustainable transportation, it's so lightweight, it's terribly dangerous, but it's a very efficient <laughs> way. It's a very efficient way to get people around. And, I, and, and so we have this car, and I painted the other lab logo on the door. We hired a sign painter. And it just struck me that we should have... Um, uh, like a slogan on it. So we wrote, future happens. <laughs> and I think it's a little, it was my punk rock relationship yeah. with shit happens, the future is doomed, maybe it isn't, we can fix it. 
And so uh, I completely identify with this. Like you, you have to, to be subversive against this. Like I think there is too many people who just believe we're going to destroy everything. And to be subversive, you just you have to confront that in way, in some way. And I think the the open question that is future happens or uh, more and more and more future is is uh, makes everyone think, and it's good. My version of that is uh, kind of a rip-off of Nike. Just do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. Please check for other podcast episodes and video talks on our website, talbergfoundation.org. And follow us on social media to stay tuned for upcoming events.